This is Bob Cutmore. The Sanfords, Kirk Douglas, the Painted Rocks, the Baseball Oracle, and more. Signed copies of my local history books are available. Hidden History of the Mohawk Valley and Stories from the Mohawk Valley. You can buy signed copies at Old Peddler's Wagon on Church Street and The Bookhound on Main Street in Amsterdam. Hidden History and Stories from the Mohawk Valley are also at bookstores everywhere and online at Amazon.com. This is The Historians, Episode 34. We welcome Julia Blackwelder to the program. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Julia Blackwelder has spent her life in history. We'll have more on that in a little while, but I want to get going on her topic, which really interests me. She has written a uh, history uh, book, which is called Electric City, General Electric in uh, Schenectady. I note in in your bio that you uh, were from Schenectady County. Is that what prompted your your interest in GE? Yes, it certainly did. I uh, lived in Schenectady County until I went away to college. Um, My family was a GE family. All the children I knew growing up were in some way connected with GE. Uh, Many of them actually went off also to work at GE, so I Although I never worked there, my ties are pretty close. Okay. And you have, you know, good and bad things to say about GE. <laughs> yes. One point that, that you make, I mean, it has been a very successful corporation over the uh, a long term. Uh, and you describe it, and you, maybe you'll come up with something different from the, what I'm thinking you're going to go after, but um, what is the key to their success? I would say the The keys to their success were branding themselves early on as a company with an identifiable logo that ended up going all around the world, identifying that logo with technological excellence, identifying technological innovation with progress for mankind, and... um, cementing their employees to those concepts. Yeah, that's interesting. I would agree with all those points as sort of a GE watcher, and I actually worked for the company for maybe two years when they owned uh, broadcast outlets, but uh, they have made themselves seem, or they GE has marketed itself in such a way that it appears to be more than just a company that makes widgets, you know, that they're in, interested in, in the progress of the human race. Yes, and I I believe that for the founding members of the company, those engineers and perhaps the financial managers, I'm not so certain about them, but certainly the the technological side of the industry, um, those men, they were all men, um, certainly believed that they were building a better world. They were awed by the prospects what electricity could deliver to the world. You just said they were all men. Let's get to that. I believe uh, you know that you develop in the book the theme that General Electric was not particularly good to women. No, it was it was not. That's that's certainly not unique to General Electric, but it was so deeply entwined in the company culture that in fact it never it hasn't gone away even to the present. And and that binding of the idea of of maleness, masculinity, 
to the electrical industry and to engineering um, helps to explain why even now women have such difficulty making progress in what we now call the STEM disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't deal, well, you said even now they don't, but your book on GE kind of has a cutoff date, right? What is that date? Yes, it doesn't have an exact cutoff date, but it really concentrates on the time from the founding of GE in 1892 up until World War II, when World War II changed everything so much that I, that's kind of a, that would have to be a different book. Sure. Now, today in, in Schenectady GE, the people I know uh, at there are mainly women. And I, I mean, I don't have the what, what, wherewithal, whatever, to argue with you about it, but they're, they're happy in their, their jobs. They're, they're making what to me is a, a lot of money and uh, seems like they're doing well. Well, certainly they're doing well in comparison with GE in the 1890s and the 1900s and right up until um, probably about 1955. Um they still don't really have equity in the company, but they certainly are much better off than their forebear, their female forebears in the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, un- unlike many heavy industries and manufacturing in general in America in the early 20th century, GE always had a large number of female employees. And um, so this the segregation of women has such a long history in the company that it's been extremely difficult for the company to change its own culture in order to expand opportunities for women. Um, and, in fact, the expansion of opportunities came largely because they were cheaper. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, again, we're talking with Julia uh, Kirk Blackwelder about uh, General Electric, in particular uh, General Electric in Schenectady. Let me, we can come back to that, but let me go back to my first question. I was really trying to driving at. Let me try to state it as I remember you saying it in an interview you did with uh, Bill Buell of the uh, Daily Gazette that GE succeeded in part by bringing together these sci- scientists with marketers. And you call them, and maybe GE called them, the craftsmen, to follow up on your theme, who actually built the products. I mean, that yes, was... There, yeah, yeah, yes. There were these were broad categories, and, and in fact, um, remain so today, broad categories of employees at General Electric and, and similar companies. Um, and GE, I would say, was somewhat distinguished by the role that it gave both in its advertising and in the company itself to scientists. Their history of having a research lab goes back to Charles Steinmetz, and therefore it it, it has been deeply rooted in the culture. But the scientists fit into this larger category of technical men, um, scientists, engineers, both production engineers and research engineers, and the craftsmen, those people who machined the parts from which the other machines were made. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all had unique roles. This dates back even before GE. Um, Thomas Edison, for example, could not have made the incandescent bulb without the craftsmanship of uh, Chermak, who actually ended up working for GE, 
um, who made the porcelain insulator that made the bulb mm-hmm. possible and practical. So it's these, these three categories, the professional men, engineers, uh, scientists, and craftsmen, and then the large, of course, production mm-hmm. workforce who, who ran the machines. As you uh, indicate, uh, it's a team effort. And another thing that I've seen at, uh, at GE, you know, observing it over the over the years, but, you know, those years sort of start after the, the end of your book, there, GE is very interested, I don't know, in, in education. Or they, they've always got some sort of thing going. Like right now, and I'm blanking on it, it's called Six Sigma or something like that, where they, uh, you know, you, have, you win these uh, black belt and a white belt and so on and so forth, and they send their some of their managers off to this, sort of think tank that's almost like a boot camp called in New York called Crotonville where they, they learn these techniques of dealing with people and, and so on and so forth. They're, they're very big on that. Is that true as far as the period you write about? Yes. Uh, the programs were very different then, partly because when GE started, there were almost no trained engineers anywhere in the Western world. Uh, and so those few who were trained... Um, had to bring up through the ranks from from the shop floor those men that they believed were capable and um, worthy of being trained further. So there were a variety of programs. The most important for engineers was something that persisted until quite recently called the test program, in which... Um, Young men, sometimes college graduates, but in the early years, mostly not college graduates, uh, went through a program of learning what GE valued in engineering skills and acquiring those skills. In Schenectady in particular, that test program was uh, somewhat loosely associated with the engineering school at Union College, Mm. which GE helped to finance and which... Um, someone who had a very close association, past or current, with GE was the head of the engineering department. Mm-hmm. So that included Charles Steinmetz at one time, and he was uh, followed by Ernst Berg, mm-hmm. who had been a GE employee. Also, I gather from uh, Bill's article that you aren't as as keen on Steinmetz as a lot of us are. I mean, I mean, he was this genius guy. I mean, that's my take on him, and uh, who was unusual. You know, he had a lot of physical infirmities, and um, but but was marketed by GE. Really, you know, they they drew attention to the fact they had this brilliant guy uh, working for him. Uh, what, what is your take on Steinmetz? Well, as I understand it, um, Charles A. Coffin, the first president of General Electric and uh, Edwin Wilbur Rice Jr., who was the uh, Coffin was the first president. Rice was the second president. Rice was a uh, the only president actually to ever live in Schenectady. But those two men together were responsible for organizing GE in the 1890s, and um, they hired Steinmetz shortly after the company was formed, or within two years after it was formed. And as I understand it, Rice and Coffin agreed that they did not uh, find it advantageous for the company, for them to be in the limelight. And so they focused on Steinmetz and had their publicity people focus on Steinmetz. That was not uh, in and of itself an 
an inexplicable or unnatural development because Steinmetz already had a very strong reputation as a mathematician who had solved this problem of how to measure the power of an electrical motor. That was something that before had left largely to experimentation once you build something. So that was not very, that was not advantageous for industry to have to build something and then find out what it would do. You needed to tell your customer you could build this motor that would do such and such. And it was Steinmetz's mathematics that allowed that problem to be solved. So he was then naturally a prominent person, and he also wrote um, regularly and contributed to professional journals. So he he was well-known at the time. That Well, that was not really the issue. But Steinmetz didn't stand alone, either at GE or in the electrical profession. He was assisted by many other people, much as Edison was mm-hmm. assisted by Chermak and others in producing things. So to build him as kind of the hero of electricity mm-hmm. is really um, deceptive. Okay. And yeah, also c- they created many myths about him. One of the myths was that he made $100,000 a year. Well, in fact, he made $10,000 a year, <laughs> which is considerably well, bad. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I think I get, I get your drift, sort of like the great man theory of history. You know? Yes, I which mean, right. really is uh, it's a distortion, especially for ordinary people like you and me who try to make our right. way in the world, measure ourselves against these yeah, presumed. But in a way, did Steinmetz have the last laugh? Maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, he, he ended up being a socialist, right? I mean, he, and, and Schenectady had a socialist mayor. I can hardly think that GE appreciated that. Well, I wouldn't call that the last laugh. Uh, for two reasons. One is his socialism was well known before he ever came here um, and had presumably something to do with his coming to America in the first place. Um, but second, GE did have the last laugh in uh, regard to the fact that when Steinmetz, well, Steinmetz left the Socialist Administration in Schenectady when the administration kind of crumbled because the socialists who were in the government had so many disagreements among themselves. But then uh, later, Steinmetz tried to make a comeback for a state office in New York. And um, he was to go on the radio, make an address to announce his candidacy. And uh, the company induced him not to make the speech, and he, he later withdrew from that right. from politics altogether. I'm just fishing here, uh, you know, because of my interest in radio and working for GE uh, Broadcasting. Did you do anything with uh, Ernst Alexanderson in your book? Um, no, not really, except to point out that um, Alexanderson uh, certainly was one of GE's most talented and long-lasting um, developers of new product ideas and new products. But he's kind of an, well, he is an interesting counterpoise to Christian Steenstrup, whose name is not so familiar. Uh, Steenstrup developed the monitor top refrigerator, mm-hmm. which without question was General Electric's most successful and dependable uh, consumer, home consumer product. But I think Alexanderson is remembered because the products on which he worked, particularly television, were so much more exciting mm-hmm. 
There's just nothing exciting about a refrigerator. You want (laughs) to have one, but... I, I mean, no, you don't stay up at night <laughs> dreaming about it or watching it. Well, I'm sorry to waste your, your time here, but, but the, our family story always was that my dad had got a job at GE. You know, we live in Am, you know, this was, he came from Amsterdam. Uh, and he got laid off in the Depression, but he was working on those refrigerators uh, when he got uh, laid off. But then he went to work for the uh, carpet mill. Uh-huh. Um, which did okay, but here's a point. I mean, growing up in Amsterdam, GE was always seen as the best job around here, you know, as opposed to even the carpet mills. I mean, the carpet mills were okay. You know, if you were uh, became a skilled worker and actually a weaver or something uh, like that, but it, it was nothing like working at GE. It was always seen as the desired place to work. Well, I believe that's true, that it was. It was a preferable place to work because... Wages were generally higher than under other industries in the area. The work was ongoing. It wasn't seasonal. I mean, in the carpet mills, there wasn't a seasonality as there is in the agricultural industry, but um, fluctuations were a little yeah. more obvious. Also, let me uh, ask you about unions which I've always been interested in and belong to over the years and so forth. Um, do, in your book, do you, you treat, uh, was it Lemuel Balware? Do you have a Well, remember? yes, I, yes, I do mention him. Um, and, and by the way, my understanding of Lemuel Balware is that he was a GE executive who developed their style of negotiating with unions when they had to accept unions, which was to make one full, fair, firm, and final offer. And supposedly it was this uh, strike that I remember covering in 69 where GE actually changed its offer, which seemed like a big thing at the time. Well, it, it was because that policy had struck had um, traced back to um, the end of the 1930s when when unions first got really entrenched in Schenectady, and what made them successful was the coming of the CIO. And the CIO was successful uh, in places like General Electric because it was able to bring the craftsmen and the ordinary workers together in a single union. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, they were, therefore, successful in Schenectady, in General Electric, towards the end of the Depression, or in the midst of the Depression, even though um, GE didn't have a great need for labor at that time. They did that by solidifying the entire workforce. Mm -hmm. So after that experience, GE tried to figure out how they could uh, break the union. And despite their rhetoric, that was really their intention, was to make the the union not go away necessarily, but to greatly diminish its powers. And, and Bulware developed this, we have one offer and that's it, yep. strategy. It's really fascinating talking with you. I want to ask about a name that you and I discussed in uh, correspondences. Uh, you knew the union leader and retiree leader, Helen Quirini? Uh, um, I, didn't, I did not know her personally. Oh, okay. um, I certainly uh, had seen her name come up um, repeatedly during my lifetime. Uh, my father said he, that she once uh, worked under his supervision, and um, several of my friends in the history profession have done work on the unions in GE, which included uh, getting to know Helen Corini quite well. 
And of course, her her um, papers are in Albany, and she herself actually wrote quite a few things about her experiences at GE. And mm-hmm. those uh, her writings on the on the union and on her experiences in GE are part of the book. Julia Kirk Blackwelder is the author of the book uh, General Electric in, or Electric City General Electric in Schenectady. I, I said we we we're you know again running short of time but we talk about you. You've had a, uh, I, I would say a distinguished career a, after uh, growing up in the Schenectady area in history uh, as a history professor and author. Well, I <laughs> I don't know how distinguished it is, but I certainly uh, have enjoyed my life in history. Uh, to kind of tie it to the whole experience of writing Electric City, I would say one of the things that um, is, to me, special about my career in history is that in every university in which I've worked, I have had a colleague who grew up in Schenectady with um, parents or a parent who worked for General Electric. Hmm. And one of the things we always talk about is that... Um, there are many industrial towns in America, but as far as we're concerned, growing up here was unique. Yeah, I think so. And you were uh, most recently, or were you for your whole career, at Texas A&M University? I was at uh, Georgia Tech for a short time. I was at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and at... Uh, the University of Cincinnati, and at Texas A&M. And you have other books, uh, Styling Jim Crow, African-American Beauty Training During uh, Segregation, uh, Now Hiring the Feminization of Work in America, and Women of the Depression, Cast and Culture in San Antonio. And you've come back to us. You live uh, in uh, Boston now. Yes, I do. Okay, well. Beautiful Boston. Well, glad to, certainly glad to have you here. And the other thing, uh, I didn't want to bring it up to the end because I just find it sort of so, so odd that you come out with this book, Electric City, General Electric in uh, Schenectady, uh, and another author, uh, Elizabeth Rosner, or Rosner, I don't know, I never met, uh, met her, has come out with a book uh, almost at the same time called Electric City, but it's a novel set in uh, the declining period of GE in the 1970s. Do you know her? I do not know her, but I think that confirms my point, that this community has marked people in particular ways, and it never actually leaves you. You can go away, but um, your past is always from Schenectady if you are from here. Very good. Uh, and the book is available, I'm sure, at... Uh, all the regular places, including uh, Amazon and uh, local bookstores. And are, are you not, uh, again, I'm fishing, I, I thought I saw this, you're doing a, a talk soon in Schenectady? Yes, I am, at the um, Schenectady Historical Society. It's on November 20th, which I believe is a Thursday, at 6 o'clock. And that's at their facility in the stockade? Uh, yes, on the Washington <laughs> Avenue. Okay, near the old home of uh, WRGB Television. Exactly. <laughs> You're the YWCA. <laughs> That's right, the YWCA. Well, uh, Julia Kirk Blackwelder, it's been a pleasure talking with you about General Electric, GE, uh, the meatball company. That's what the employees today call that sign. I don't know if they did that uh-huh. over the years. But. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. Right. I uh, always enjoy talking about Schenectady and about GE. Very good. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, the author is Julia Blackwelder, her book Electric City, General Electric in Schenectady.